I am pushing as hard as I've ever pushed in my whole life, but there is a physical limitation to what I do and how long I can do it for. Um, to be a little bit dramatic, it's like what Luke Skywalker said in The Last Jedi, it's time for the Jedi to end. And I don't see anything wrong with that. Sad as it is, there's a breed of restaurants that is dying off in Malaysia. Restaurants we call kopitiams. These are classic, old-school eateries that hold a lot of history and tradition about Malaysian cuisine. In fact, these restaurants began life long before the country of Malaysia even existed. And as you'll hear today, just like the Jedi Order, the future of kopitiams looks uncertain. This is Take A Bow, the show exploring anything and everything around Asian food. I'm Lo Ijun. As you heard in the intro, on this episode, we are exploring the food and culture behind Kopitiams. But before that, I just want to acknowledge that yes, we are all still in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic and all our futures look uncertain, not just that of Kopitiams. It's a scary, stressful time for a lot of us, but I hope that everyone is staying safe and I hope this podcast brings you some form of entertainment and helps to relieve some of that tension and stress amidst all the doom and gloom of this situation we're all in. And I recorded these interviews in the beginning of the year actually before life became so scary and surreal for many of us and it really tells the tale of the struggles of Kopitiams even before all this hit us. I honestly enjoyed putting this one together it really kind of digs deep into the nitty-gritty of what makes a kopitiam run and what is putting their livelihood and their futures in danger. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, if you've never heard of a kopitiam, they are essentially really simple and fussy restaurants that are very representative of Malaysia's dynamic, multicultural society. Most kopitiams you walk into will have Chinese decor and paintings on the wall. The signboards and menus will be written in Malay. The food they serve is sort of reminiscent of certain British dishes intertwined with Malaysian flavors and ingredients. And as you hear, there is a whole load of Asian tradition and family values baked into the very existence of kopitiams. Half a century ago, you'll find a kopitiam in every neighborhood in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia's capital. But nowadays, kopitiams are few and far between, which makes it extra interesting and important to try and understand the stories and culture surrounding them and find out what's in store for their future. So today, we'll dig into how and why kopitiams are fading and hear the story of one famous kopitiam in Malaysia and uncover the customs and traditions underpinning it. But before all that, we'll first need to answer the question, what is a kopitiam? And how did they first come to be? Actually, the name Kopitiam is actually a Hokkien dialect. Kopi means coffee. Tiam means shop. Okay, so Kopitiam, if we translate it into English, is coffee shop. That is Anisha Chai, a food researcher and lecturer at the Sunway University of Hospitality in Malaysia. And though, like Anisha said, Kopitiam does mean coffee shop, in the Hokkien dialect, they are really nothing like your typical cafe serving flat whites and lattes and bougie brunch fare. 
Instead, these coffee shops are the product of many, many years of Chinese tradition and colonialism. Back in the early 19th century, while Malaysia, which was then called Malaya, was ruled by the British, it was a true melting pot of cultures, with traders and settlers from Europe and different parts of Asia migrating over to Malaya to plunder the riches of the land and sea. And with that, the British brought in shiploads of immigrants and labourers too, many of which were from different parts of China, from Guangzhou to Fujian to Hong Kong, and most importantly, there was the Hainanese from Hainan Island, who were the ones credited for setting up the very first Kopitiams. Kopitiam is believed to have first started in the uh, late 19th century, to early 20th century. I mean, why, why the Hainanese Kopitiam uh, started during that period of time is because when the Hainanese first came from Hainan okay, to uh, Malaya, it was Malaya then, uh, not even Malaysia, um, a lot of them were working with the European household. Okay. Um, why they work with the European household is because by the time they came, a lot of the so-called better jobs were already taken up by the other dialect groups like the Cantonese from Guangdong province and, and uh, Fujian province. Okay, um, So they have no choice but to work at cook boys or cooks for the European household. And because of that, they acquire that sort of skills, not just cooking, but also uh, we call it now the hospitality skills, okay? Uh, because they, they help the, 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 the British households and all that. Uh, they, they take care of the family, not just not just cook for them, they also do housekeeping or you know, sort of mm-hmm. gardening and all that, okay? Actually, before and after the, the, the British left, uh, before the World War, in the early 40s, okay, because of the Japanese uh, invasion, a lot of the European actually left. Yeah, yeah. So all these people, where do they work? Because they, they, they practically lost the job with the British household and all that. So whatever skills that they have acquired, you know, whether it's cooking, housekeeping and all that, they utilize whatever skills that they have acquired to, um, to earn a living for themselves. It's really for survival reasons. Okay. That's why uh, they started to sell um, coffee, tea, you know, uh, and open up small food businesses. It's actually for them to make a living okay, after they lost the job with the European household. Mm. That's, that's how uh, Hainanese Kopitiam uh, was started. And with these British and Hainanese influences, there's nothing else quite like Kopitiam food in the rest of Malaysia. And the most iconic Kopitiam dish is toast, half-boiled eggs, and coffee, which, when you think about it, aren't at all Malaysian at that point in time, or even Asian for that matter. When the Hainanese, um, when they were working with the, with the European household, y- you learn how to uh, bake bread, you learn how to uh, make coffee, you learn how to make soft-boiled egg. So, because this is what you have learned, so you, you are actually selling what you have learned from those households and, and make it and turn it into some kind of product, you know. And, and this kind of product, the public, they loved it. So you just continue with that. But beyond toast and coffee, 
The traditional Hainanese kopitiams were also famous for their chicken chops that often came with a side of potatoes and peas, which can only mean one thing. I mean, you see the green peas, you know it's not, it's British. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. Nothing against Brits, but who else would put peas in their food? But from toasts and chicken chops, the food at kopitiams quickly evolved to suit the Malaysian palate. And the few classic kopitiams that remain today have really long menus with dozens of dishes combining the different flavours and textures of Chinese cuisine, British food, and also the local Malaysian cuisine. To get a true sense of the plethora of kopitiam foods there are, I made a visit to one of the oldest kopitiams in the heart of Malaysia's capital, Kuala Lumpur. The kopitiam is Yakki, and it's owned by a father and son duo, Mervyn and Jack Lee. I went by on an early weekday morning for breakfast and service was already in full swing. Mervyn quickly hurried me along and showed me around his kitchen. Alright, so this is where the action literally happens. This is that we are in the kitchen. Uh, we have a relatively wide variety of items. It ranges from having fryers, deep fryers, to do our chicken chops, our pork chops, roti babi, french toast, to uh, stir-fried noodles, and even the soup noodles, like the beef noodle and the, and the lummy. We have everything on the six-ring burner as well. Most of the things are prepared in the morning. Like, However, chicken chop and pork chop, the meat needs to marry, be marinated at least a day beforehand. Uh, standard of all our chops, we will have chicken chop, pork chop, lamb chop, beef steak, fish chop, is that we will put a few potato wedges not the processed potato edges. These are potatoes that we boil as a whole. We peel and we cut them up into wedges and we fry them. So these are also manual in that sense. A bit of mixed vegetables like peas and carrots and maybe a bit of corn. And then we'll, we'll serve that all that together with our onion gravy that's synonymous with our chops. Oh, so many things. Plus, there's also the signature toast of any and every kopitiam in Malaysia, roti baka, which literally means burnt bread. It's basically two pieces of really thin, crustless white bread, toasted and then sandwiched together with butter and coconut jam. The roti baka is the standard. We have basically like what feels like a small mini barbecue grill. Uh, we still use charcoal fire to toast our roti baka. Where people you either use it, it's a shortened version of what people use to do satay. So we use that, we keep the charcoal going and going, and when there's an order that comes in, we throw the bread there, we toast it. And because of the heat, the intensity of the heat, it toasts very fast. So, I mean, people come for roti baka, so this is a staple. staple. Yeah, yeah, but I, I feel like a lot of uh, kopitiams have moved on to you know using the toaster ovens right so how come you you still stick with like charcoal uh, my, my philosophy is this if it ain't broke don't fix it number one but also there's something to be said you will get a difference in flavor and taste by using a charcoal fire as opposed to an electric grill or electric toaster this is what how yucky was it's no frills dining people come for that flavor we try to retain as much as we can. Yep, no frills dining is perhaps the best way to describe kopitiam food. But a kopitiam is really more than just the food. Because kopitiams are older than Malaysia itself, they have an important place in Malaysia's culinary history. 
And just like what Anisha told us about how Kopitiams are linked to Hainanese immigrants, Yatki's history follows pretty much the same path. Mervyn's father, Jack Lee, told me about the restaurant's beginning. Well, I'm Jack. Uh, I'm the owner of uh, Yatki Restaurant. Jack, or Uncle Jack as he's more affectionately known, is a wrinkled man with a head of graying hair and a slight limp to his walk. You can tell age is catching up to him. And yet, at the Kopitiam, you'll find Uncle Jack bustling around, talking and interacting with the shop patrons like old friends, and his eyes would sparkle whenever there's any talk of politics or the past. Uh, I've been running this setup from uh, officially in 1969. And uh, since then, I've been running this uh, setup. And how, how old are you now today? I am 75. 75, and I took over, I was at the age of uh, 25. So it was more or less officially after the so-called so-called racial rights in 1969. Everybody claimed it's a racial rights, but I personally believe that it was more of a political maneuver. As you can probably tell from the very first question, I was already having trouble reining Uncle Jack in from the pits of Malaysian politics. And the racial riot that he mentioned is a really sordid chapter of Malaysian history that we aren't going to delve into today, but maybe at some point in the future. But Uncle Jack quickly got back into talking about his favourite subject, the history of Yatki and the history of Kopitiams in general, which really echoes what we heard from Anisha earlier on. Most of the Kopitiams, they have been Muslim immigrants. For that matter, all the tradesmen of that area of time were all, all, all immigrants. Do you know this, the exact story of how your dad came from like Hainan? He came in as basically hard labor. Like those say sometimes, you know, he's a slave. You come there and do work in the same of the Kopitiam community, the Hainanese community. When they, when they decided to move on to Southeast Asia, they were one of the last groups the earlier the Hokkien's, the Hakka's, you know, who have gone into mining and all kind of industry. So at that period of time, they were limited in terms of opportunities. So they go and work as, you know, mostly they say they work with all these like waiters and caretakers of rest houses working for these so-called those days. They say the Masale, they were the one running the government. And I suppose... They say, oh, they become good in cooking. But I think uh, all comes down to this element of survival, uh, you know. How did your dad move from that into starting Yotki then to, to, to survive? No, my dad was working. I don't know what he did before that, but he was working for a miner, the late Chu Kiaping. And uh, no, so-called miner, he was involved in also estates and all that is the he has uh the house he's had a mansion for that matter on Ampang Road. Currently the Australian Embassy and the public bank adjoining it well the property of Chu Kiaping. And your dad was my dad and my second mother used to work there 
And those days, like, housekeeper. And those days, my mom was the nanny to one of the sons. So then, yeah. your, your parents met at Chu Kia Ping's yeah, mansion. There and that's where they, after they got married or whatever, came up, started this business. But ever since my dad started business in 1928, until he passed away in 1947 when I was only three years old, it was my three mothers of mine who managed together to hold the fort, so to say, so to speak, until I officially took over in 1969. So due recognition has to be recorded that it was these three so-called iron ladies who contribute tremendously for what it is today. So Yatki was started by Uncle Jack's late father, Lee Taek. When Jack was three, Taek passed away and his mother and two stepmothers kept the business thriving. And though Jack did officially take over the business in his mid-twenties, it was far from an easy journey. I mean, I was around, and but I hardly sort of play a very active role. I mean, we, whatever say, I was a rascal in the sense that I was given the opportunity uh, to go finish my secondary studies and had the opportunity of going into the University of Malaya. And yet, despite all these opportunities, like the typical Malaysian boy of his time, his mind was on other things. Specifically, it was on his favourite sport, rugby. I love my game. I love my rugby. I, I, I don't play top rugby. I play club level, school level. I enjoy the fellowship, the fraternity, so to speak. I'm one of the founder members of the club called the Cobras. Cobras stands for Combined Old Boys Rugby Association. Yes, Jack was a big rugby buff. And he was part of the founding team for the Cobras in 1967, when he was just 22 years old. Despite his strong love for rugby, though, there was something else that was stronger. And that was his sense of obligation and duty towards his family. Inside, he knew he couldn't escape his fate as the heir of his father's kobitiam. For a long time in his 20s, Uncle Jack was torn in between these two worlds, rugby and a kobitiam kitchen. Then came a moment that made him realise his calling. When I was injured, I was in the midst of doing all this, you know, I was running the kitchen. And when I was injured and I was put into a, in my sling, I found that, you know, that guy is not doing the way that should be. So I decided, you know, to get my hand off the sling and go in and do the cooking. Wait, but suddenly... At this point, your, your hand was like half broken? Yeah, yeah my, 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 uh, my collarbone was broken. So I tried... I thought, you know, nothing. No, no. As they say, the the spirit is willing, but the body is yeah. damaged. Eh? So I put my hand in and suddenly I realized, shit, I can't even bring my hand out. And that's the time my, my, my late elder sister was in the house, in the kitchen, chased me out. Then, you know, you have to make a decision. So I say, either I play my game which is so physical. And so I have to decide to give up. I mean, then on account of that, I never went to the field to see because every time you see somebody play, you know, you get the itch to go in. 
and you know you're not ready to go in because you get hurt and then you know when you play a physical game the chances of getting hurt is always there right and i can't afford it he couldn't afford it because running the kopitiam was more important carrying out his father's legacy was more important family was more important and this feeling that Jack described is really revealing of many Chinese or Asian businesses that still runs today. It's that feeling of duty to its family, that calling to dedicate your life to continue what your parents created. It's often called filial piety. And with Jack, filial piety ran deep. So deep that he gave up his love for his favourite sport, never to play it again. It's been over 50 years now since Uncle Jack took over the reins at Yatki. I asked him how he felt about it all. And after going so many years, if you ask me whether I go back into it, I don't think I want to. <laughs> you know what I mean? I continue my, my, what my dad has started. And all said and done, I think uh, there was no regrets. Huh? Like I always say, life is a passage of learning. And never one moment did I regret it. Because um, life is never a, a, a smooth journey. But now that age is creeping up to Uncle Jack, he's handed the torch on to the next generation, to his son, Mervyn. And Uncle Jack has high expectations for his son. So, all said and done, I think I'm blessed. I'm more than blessed by so many factors. And one of them is well, running this business for this number of years and now in the process of handling to Mervyn to my son to take over. Hopefully we have already now achieved 91 years that he can go up to 100 years. That one, my father, I don't think he ever dreamt that uh, we could sustain it for so long. Like Uncle Jack, Mervyn's path to running Yutki was similar too. Because a generation later, filial piety is still what keeps this kopitiam running. Um, let's see, how do, I, how do I begin? Only son in a typical Chinese family with two siblings who are girls. Um, apparently, I could not outrun my fate. In a young and early age of 10, we were already involved in helping out in operations. Back then, I started out by, you know, helping to bust the tables, helping out in the counter, learning to pack the cakes, learning to cut the cakes, uh, this is where my math got really good because there wasn't calculators back then. Not that I use the abacus. I'm not that old school yet, by the way. Um, but um, you got good at a few things. Speaking with Mervyn, I really sensed echoes of what Uncle Jack struggled through in his childhood while taking over the Kopitiam. I'm sure you'll be able to as well as you hear this. I could say I've lost my childhood by not being an average kid going out to the park on the weekends, not hanging out with friends and all that, because spent most of it here. And this carried on until I went to college. Do you have any early memories of, you know, your father asking you to help out when, I guess, you wanted to hang out with, with other people and your friends, your peer groups? Uh, well, my, my parents, I would say, oh, this is how our family can spend time together. Lie. <laughs> anyway, uh... So I guess, and both my parents were involved in the business. So, um, truth is, when they say that it's uh, they are short of staff, 
and also they didn't have time to oversee us at home, I suppose. So you say you want to say that it's a way for the family to spend time together, but you're not really spending time together. You're just running a business. That's the reality of it. I don't think being the third generation owner of a kopitiam was anywhere near the top of Mervin's list of aspirations. But as an Asian culture, family and duty often overrules all. Again, for me, I, I, I'm a simpleton in the sense that it's a means to an end. I tried doing something outside a long time ago when I first graduated. But you know the thing about familial expectations, obligations, is that you still need to help out. Because they were getting on in their years and then there was an issue in succession planning. And even though despite my trying to not be back here, I had to make a call. So I made the call and I stayed back to to run it. And um, though it is what it is. It's not that we are, we are able to, to perceive what could have been. But, um, but I believe that if you're going to do something, do it well. Don't do it half-heartedly or don't lose the drive or motivation to see through. It's come at great cost, physically, mentally, emotionally, but I'm still here. Like his father, Mervyn is now feeling the toll of running a kopitiam. And as you're probably thinking, this really feels like a vicious cycle. From Jack feeling that obligation to carry on his father's business and giving up rugby, to now with Mervyn taking over and having to give up his childhood and career aspirations. But unlike his father, Mervyn does not want to pass this mantle onto his children. The truth is how I'm running it. I am faced with the same issues, which will be succession planning. Running this place takes out a lot from a person. It, it's given me so much, yet it's also taken so much. I have a daughter, only one kid, and, and I give her the best that I can through the fruits of my labor. Would I want her to do this? In all honesty, June, no. I'm not being very frank there. Um, unless she's adamant and she doesn't have her head screwed on right and she wants the whole world of pain, sure. So what will happen to Yatki? I'm not the model example of health and fitness. Clearly not. I am 40. I am pushing as hard as I've ever pushed in my whole life. But there is a physical limitation to what I do and how long I can do it for. Um, to be a little bit dramatic, it's like what Luke Skywalker said in The Last Jedi, it's time for the Jedi to end. And I don't see anything wrong with that. Uh, reason being that come 15th of January next week, the shop would have been 92 years old. The business, 92 years old. Um, I've only been here for 16, a fraction of that. Most of it was my grandparents, then my father. And I'm sure when they started something, nobody had an idea of where we're going to take this. It's just, it pays the bills, it feeds the family, you know, and life goes on. But their efforts are there. Their contributions are there. And it isn't just Yatki. 
This sentiment is shared by many other Kopitiams too, as Mervyn tells me. I know of a few. I've heard of a few that closed down also. There was the one at opposite the old bar council, Singnam. They closed down maybe about seven, more than seven years now. I know of the families, uh, third generation. I would presume they are my peers in that sense in terms of generations. I've spoken to one of them. And she said that she and her brother were actually interested in taking over, but their father refused them. Go do something else with your lives. And it's the same thing I feel for when, if should my daughter want to do this, there's so much more out there to do. So does that mean the era of Kopitiams is coming to an end? Does it mean that in a few decades, we're not going to have places to have our roti baka and chicken chops anymore? Perhaps. But as a consolation, despite the closure of these classic kopitiams with yellowing walls, rickety signboards, and old uncles in singlets making coffee and toast, in the place of these kopitiams are modern franchises and chains. But these kopitiam chains don't quite have that endearing old-school charm of the traditional kopitiams. And many kopitiam pioneers look at these chains with disdain because many of these places dilute and fusionize the kopitiam menu to suit a larger crowd. They've introduced burgers and fries and a whole slew of dishes that you would never find in a kopitiam 20 years ago. Here's what Anisha has to say on the subject. I think because the, the, the market has changed, okay, um, I don't think the youngster want to go to the old-style uh, kopitiam. You know? um, so... I guess it's, it's to adapt to the market. We see Kopitiam chain, you know, like the Paparich, like the Old Town and all that. You know? they, they, they sort of like upgraded the Kopitiam. Uh, it's aircon. Uh, of course, you pay more. Price, yeah, yeah. yeah you, uh, they give you Wi-Fi, so you have to, <laughs> you have to pay. But, but if you look at the food, actually, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's similar. But you see the core product of Kopitiam. Like you still see the chum, you see the, the kopi and the teh and all that. Okay? But of course, for business reasons, they added more food items. Okay? And I think the chain Kopitiam gives us an impression of not just the Hainanese identity, but also some sort of Malaysian identity. So despite the dilution of Kopitiam food, it's that Malaysian identity that continues to draw Anisha in. It gives her that sense of nostalgia, and even if it's a chain, she feels this nostalgia the most when it comes to her favourite drink, Cham Ping, which is a Kopitiam classic of coffee and tea mixed into one drink, served over ice. I grew up with the drink, especially the drinks, not so much of the, the food that's served by all this uh, kopitiam. Uh, even like now, uh, I drink my, I don't, I don't quite drink espresso, but I, I drink a lot of uh, cappuccino and all that. And a lot of people were telling me that, you know, uh, the kopi in the kopitiam are not so healthy because it is uh, roasted with sugar and margarine and all that. But because of that nostalgic feeling, I don't care whether it's healthy or not healthy. If I can have my chumping, I will want to have my chumping. Okay, I, I, that's me, you know. It's in part down to these nostalgic memories that people have for kopitiams that keep the culture strong. 
In fact, Anisha thinks kopitiams and kopitiam food will actually remain a part of the Malaysian culinary fabric for a long time. Kopitiam should be able to to stay. I mean, whether um, whether it will remain the same forever or not, I think I I, I won't be able to to tell you whether it will mm. be. You no, know? I I guess for you, your your biggest wish is that. All kopitiams will keep continuing to serve charm, is it? <laughs> yes, yes. If not, I will not go. <laughs> if not, I will not go. And really, this isn't just the hopeful nostalgia felt by the older generation. Despite many old kopitiams closing their shutters in the past few decades, the food and history and stories around these shops are something that younger Malaysians like me still hear, see, and taste. And the flavor of kopitiam food is something that we appreciate and desire more than we know. I think kopitiam is not just for the older generation, okay, like me. I see a lot of youngster there, and they are not tourists, huh? mm-hmm. So, if the kopitiam, they really work on it, I think a lot of us we will we will go to that kind of places because. Uh, like it or not, it is part of us. So, despite the Jedi Order of Kopitiams seemingly coming to an end, there is still hope. There is still that desire for roti baka, chicken chops, and tamping. It is a desire, a hunger, a force that will always be with us. Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of Take a Bow. I really hope I did Kopitiams justice through this one because they're an important part of the culture and cuisine of Malaysia and Singapore too. And if you've never visited a Kopitiam before, I highly encourage you to come to one when you're in this part of the world. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback at all about the show, do subscribe to us and leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you could also tell a friend about the show. It will really, really help our little show grow and get more people excited about Asian food. Take a bow is hosted and produced by me, Lo Ijun. Thank you, Anisha Chai, Mervin Lee, and Uncle Jack for their time and willingness to share their stories. Special thanks also goes out to Trisha Toh, Kelvin Goh, and Magdalene Wong for art direction. The three of you are superstars, and I'm so so grateful to have your beautiful photos and artwork on the show. You can check out the amazing artwork on our new website, takeaboutpodcast.com. Our next episode will be out in a fortnight. Until then, this is Jun, bowing out. <laughs>